This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. You know, when when most people talk about technology, whether they are undergraduate students in my classes or professional journalists writing for the premier news outlets on the planet, there's a real recency effect that marks their words. Often the word technology is used primarily to refer to digital technology, so much so that I often pull out my smartphone during class and ask, are we only talking about this thing or do we mean something broader? You see it even more when folks talk about the tech industry, a term used to refer to the digital technology industry, and often even more restrictively to talk about the kind of high-valued app and software companies of Silicon Valley. The term tech industry drives many historians of technology bonkers, including friends of mine like Andy Russell and Patrick McRae. They say, All industries are technology industries. They're all based around tools and machines. The steel industry, the railroad industry, the pharmaceutical industry, the automobile industry, they're all tech industries. Focusing on recent technologies skews our thinking in several ways, including by leading us to assume that the digital technology industry is exceptional in ways that it is not. In reality, it is part of a much larger and longer story of capitalism and industrialization. And yet, recency is something that mars most of technology studies. I would even say that this podcast has been guilty of it so far, though that is something I hope will change over time. In walks 
Professor Catherine Freeman's recent book, An Archaeology of Innovation, Approaching Social and Technological Change in Human Society. Kate Freeman is an associate professor of European archaeology in the School of Archaeology and Anthropology at the Australian National University. Her book offers a long-term perspective on innovation that only archaeology can offer, and it draws on case studies from across human history, from our earliest hominin ancestors to the present. The books make several different arguments, but one of them is that our present narrow focus on pushing the adoption of technical innovations, especially so-called disruptive innovations, ignores the complex social, technological, and environmental system that undergirds successful societies. I had a lot of fun talking with Kate. She offers a different perspective on these topics than you often get in technology studies. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Get excited. Kate, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Uh, An Archaeology of Innovation is a cool book. When you tell strangers about it, if that's even something we even do anymore during these bizarre times, uh, what do you tell them it's about and what were you trying to do with it? So the pitch that I usually give, particularly to people who are either outside archaeology or inside archaeology and don't know kind of why I get into big picture narrative, is that all of our stories of innovation, all the kind of common wisdom that we have, all the policies that our governments work off, all the kind of grand ideas that our universities send us emails about at Friday at 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those are built on an idea of how technologies develop and change, how innovation works, uh, that has only come about in the last kind of 200 years and very much so in the last kind of 150 years in particular. But actually, you know, as a species, We've been around for 300,000 years. As a genus, we've been around for millions of years. Uh, mm-hmm. And we've been making technology and creating new things the whole time. And so if we're going to talk about innovation and really want to understand how innovation works, I think this kind of 200-year gloss of capitalism doesn't really tell us very much about how humans do things when we've got kind of hundreds of thousands of years of history of doing things uh, to hand. That's great. Um, maybe just so, you know, we get uh, you, your book does a lovely job of talking about how innovation means like so many things and nothing at the same time, depending on who you're talking to. So maybe we should say what do you, when you talk about innovation in your book, like how do you define it and what do you want your focus to be? Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways of talking about innovation. Again, a lot of this is discipline focus, so it depends yeah. whether you're talking to a, you know, a policy person, a business person, an economics person, uh, someone who's a devotee of diffusion of innovations and Roger's work from the 60s. Um, basically, I, I'm a big fan of the simple definition. So if we're going to use a big complex word with lots of baggage, let's keep it broad and simple. Uh, and I just tend to say, it's a new thing, new stuff. Shows up, is a bit different from what we did before. It might be an outgrowth of an earlier practice. It might be wholly new and novel. 
Um, doesn't have to be technology, can involve technology, might be a series of social practices, maybe new ceremonies, new religious beliefs, uh, new hairstyles, all of those are innovations. Um, a lot of the definitions break between invention and innovation, where invention mm -hmm. is a separate process to innovation. And I can understand kind of analytically why that's useful, but I'm not sure that's kind of useful in the day-to-day -day life because invention is itself a kind of long and extended process that involves doing stuff you've always done in a slightly new way. So invention is also innovative. Mm -hmm. Keep it simple. Oh. I'm a big fan. I like it. How how do you start going down this road? So I mean, you talk a bit about your dissertation work in in the book, and we'll talk about that you know in in more depth later. But yeah, just how did you end up writing this book? Uh, I can I can narrow it in to a very specific conversation. Um, there was a postdoc in my department when I was a PhD student or a DPhil student. I was at Oxford, huh. um, and he was great. He was my supervisor's postdoc. He was a really lovely guy, really brilliant, and really got me, in many ways, got me started writing my doctorate. He was really helpful in kind of pushing me to write and figuring out what the angle to write would be. Um, and I, I owe a lot to him uh, in that sense. But I asked him uh, towards the end of my PhD if he had time, and he'd, he'd gone on to another university, then if he'd have a look at a couple of chapters that I'd written about the discussion in the end, because I was feeling a little bit anxious and my supervisor was very busy and giving kind of cryptic responses the way that supervisors are wont to do. <laughs> uh, and he'd been so helpful at the start that I thought, well, maybe he can be helpful towards the end. And he sat down and he read the kind of, it was the introduction, the lit review, the methodology and the discussion to see if it all hung together. And that's what I was quite anxious about. And I was sitting in, um, sitting in the PhD student office with him because he'd come through to visit. And we were having a chat. He goes, look, this is going to sound really disheartening. Um, when I was a PhD student, when I thought I was nearly done, my supervisor sat me down and said, look, I've read it all and it's fine, but you need to, you need to actually explain X more before you finish. And I'm going to say the same thing to you. You've done this nice piece of work and it all kind of hangs together, but... Hmm. There's this thread about innovation going through it. And I don't actually know what you mean by that. And I think you need to go back and weave that thread in explicitly from the start huh. and figure it out more. Uh, and I was a little annoyed with him and I went away and started reading uh, and realized he was completely right, uh, as he was all the way throughout. Um, wonderful, wonderful mentor. Thank you, Duncan. Um, and I came away with this just real interest in innovation because as I started reading, I realized that all the literature was entirely premised on the last 200 years as if yeah. everything that had happened since the Industrial Revolution or maybe even since the First World War was just how people had always interacted and done stuff. And yeah. it just kind of sat and percolated. And it's been percolating for years, obviously. Uh, and I finally um, got a big grant a few years ago and had the excuse to sit down and write the whole thing up. Was this your grant on conservatism? Was that the mm -hmm. was that in the title? Okay. Yeah. yeah. We'll talk about um, that later. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, there, there are things that you title thing things that you title grants to get through um, review in countries with conservative governments. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I haven't even thought of using that uh, strategy. I should I should uh, try that one out. It was explicit oh. advice I was given when I moved here. Wow. Think very carefully oh. about what you call your research projects. <laughs> wow. 
So I loved, I mean, I think you're totally right about what we might call like recentism. It's not presentism because that's a different kind of thing, but like recentism in technology studies, which I mean, by the way, I'll confess also holds for this podcast so far. So I'm not going to like, you know, I'll just put that on the table. Um, And, um, you know, it's also a huge annoyance in my professional society, this society for the history of technology to very smart people like the medievalist Pam Long, for instance, you know, who writes about like or late medieval, early modern Rome, for instance, you know? Mm-hmm. And she's like, everything's basically post, um, uh, yeah, everything's basically post 1800. Most things are post 1900. Increasingly, most things are post 1950. And so you had this lovely uh, story, uh, line here. It says, uh, this is a quote from your book. It says, these stories um, uh, implicitly support the muscular technological development of the modern Western world. No ba- doubt because they are typically written by Western scholars who focus on the last 50, 100, or if they are feeling frisky, 200 years of social and technological change. I think that's right. And so, like, but I guess, like, what do we gain by thinking about this much longer history of technical change? So, well, if you're, if you know... If you were going to make a pitch to all my recentist uh, computer history friends and say, like, you know, well, what if we blow it out and think about the much longer run of human life with things? What's the benefit? So um, this might be a little bit, uh, let's say, surprising, but I think the benefit is a better future. If we Hmm. think about a better past, Um, if we only study and assume the normality of, you know, the world under capitalism with all of the inequalities um, and major problems that that entails um, with all the mm-hmm. assumptions about how we relate to the natural world, how we relate to each other, how we build mm-hmm. meaning as human beings in society, then we're just going to keep reconstructing capitalism in different forms. And we're going to keep reconstructing all those same inequities. And we're not going to sit there and go, well, but this isn't, this isn't required. We don't have to do this. If you have mm-hmm. a deeper past, if you have a longer and more complicated past to draw on, then you have a more complicated future that you can build and you have more possibilities. And for me, one of the things that I love about studying prehistory, that kind of period before the written world, is that it is kind of endlessly possible. There's an element to which it's like Mm. writing science fiction. You have rules, you have kind of physics and general kind of laws of the world. We know what pottery is, we know what stone tools are, we know the kind of physics and the gestures you need to make them. But then to fill the holes in between all those bits of broken stuff, that's basically fiction writing. Uh, And some of my Mm -hmm. archaeology colleagues, the really empirical ones, hate that I say this. Um, But it is science fiction. And like good science fiction, it should give us different ways to understand our present and it should give us different ways to walk out into the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so for me, one of the kind of the richness of a a narrative with a deep past and particularly a pre-capitalist past is to be able to walk into a future that doesn't just replicate the present. I like that. Um, and I also I have to say that I read when I was reading some of the prehistorical um, groups you read about in the book, I was like, oh, this sounds pretty nice, actually. So maybe we should just go do that. Um, I mean, no antibiotics, childbirth, yeah, yeah, probably yeah. Kills oh, there's one in three. 
like, no, I, no, I there's wouldn't have wanted to be someone, I absolutely wouldn't have wanted to be someone who, who has the possibility of giving birth before the invention of antibiotics. Oh, yeah. That's just mm. a hard line. People people always ask archaeologists, so what time in the past would you want to live in a Absolutely not. Never. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I Do you, do you know I, how I long people live? Do you know what would kill you? Mm-hmm. 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 No, I mean, the um, cesarean section is, you know, one of the most important, uh, you know, medical invention. The modern cesarean section is one of the most in- yeah. important medical inventions in human history, you know, um, just because it's allowed so many more people to live. So definitely. I'm not an actually a nostalgist for the past for the most part, uh, but there were <laughs> moments. It probably actually is the beauty of your prose kate because uh, there were moments when i was reading about like these groups in cornwall and stuff and i was like man this this sounds all right actually um so when i i should say that my wife was um at one point doing a phd in archaeology she was starting to be a paleo ethnobotanist and so mm-hmm. i hung out with archaeologists a lot and when i think of archaeologists and and tools I often think about in the history of archaeology how they use tools as kind of like signals of culture. So like, for instance, to use a famous example in North America, there's the Clovis point, right? Uh, Which is like this very famous stone tool that, you know, there's all these debates about whether that was the first culture. That's not true. We're, We're fairly certain now. But when we look, when we find these stone tools, they're taken as kind of like signals that those people whatever that mean was were there right so that there was some culture so the tools are taken as kind of signals of a way of being or something like that but i think you're you're so that's definitely true archaeologists use uh our physical remains including tools as evidence for all kinds of things but you also nicely draw out that you know archaeologists have also kind of theorized about technical change throughout at various points throughout the history. So I guess for for those of us who are kind of haven't been working in archaeology and don't know what archaeology has had to say about innovation, where where was the literature at or something like that about innovation and technological change when when Kate Freeman came on the scene? So it's often implicit. Um Technological changes, it, you know, it goes right back to the roots of the discipline. How do we understand the past? How do we take this pile of stuff? And it's it's not always obvious now because you walk into a museum and things are nicely classified and they're in the right glass boxes. Yep. But that process of figuring out how to put things in glass boxes was probably the first, I mean, you know, depending on where you start the discipline, but it's certainly the first major innovation, if you want to use the term, in archaeology, yeah. um, is figuring out how to how to order the past, that question of when um, and that question of what are very kind of closely entangled in our disciplinary history and kind of our historiography of the discipline. When is our first big question and in what order? And so Mm -hmm. you have some of the very first kind of major um, theoretical developments being about how we can figure out from the, you know, the, the stuff that's coming out of the ground, what's older and what's newer. And that, that took a long time to figure out. Uh, and a lot of that was about materials and not necessarily um, in the way we might think where someone, and this is kind of the history of it now would be, oh, well, you know, iron is obviously more sophisticated than bronze. So bronze came first. Uh, actually, the story went from the archaeological record. So it was looking at um, a whole series of excavations, tons and tons of excavations. This was all happening in mostly in Denmark, actually, Denmark and Sweden. Huh. Um 
big centres of early archaeology. Um, but Christian Jürgen Thompson, who is the curator of the National Museum, he was looking at the context and his students were looking at the contexts uh, in which the material had been excavated. And he was trying to see contexts that had, hadn't been touched since prehistory. We call those sealed contexts. And looking at what was in sealed contexts. And he and his kind of, kind of students and, and followers over the generations in the early 19th century developed a series of methods to compare sealed contexts, to sequence them. Um, and that hmm. told us things like, well, you know, there's largely stone tools before there are metal tools. Okay, so metal tools come in. Stone tools are still in use, but metal tools seem to be later. They're not all used at the same time. Okay, so there's mm -hmm. a period where there's only kind of stone of our preserved materials, because of course there's also you know, wood and basketry and textile and all these things that don't preserve very well because they decay very fast. Yeah. Um, and that was the first kind of hundred years of archaeology, and that got entangled with early This is like the Bronze Age, Iron Age, those pe the, the splitting yeah, into ages, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, that kind of sequence of ages, and that got entangled with the kind of evolutionary zeitgeist of the 19th century uh, into the anthropological work of Tyler Morgan and others, and that's where you get these kind of social evolutionary models coming out that um, tie up those technological developments and, and sometimes explicitly tie up things like the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the Stone Age, with yeah. uh, very Eurocentric ideas of social development. So people who are, you know, doing this thing, who are, you know, herding animals and using bow and arrow uh, and maybe stone tools to make their arrows, those people are barbarians. But people who are practicing full agriculture and using metal tools, those people are kind of upper barbarians or maybe lower civilized mm -hmm. um, and, and these kind of very kind of horrifying classifications except <laughs> yes. that they fed they, I mean they are they're terrible if you yeah. listen to you know lower middle and upper savagery lower middle and upper barbarism yeah. upper civilization which is basically 19th century London which I think of we can course kind of debate um, but these classifications kind of hold on and so you still have conversations with people where they talk about more or less sophisticated people or more mm -hmm. or less developed cultures. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's very much in the kind of popular imagination. And all of that is out of that 19th century evolutionary anthropology, archaeology, social theory mess yeah. that birthed a bunch of our disciplines. Uh, and so that's kind of where things originate. And, and those implicit ideas about technological development, technological change, those have been in the discipline for obviously 200 years. Add onto that a gloss of technology study. So you have, on the one hand, um, a very empirical end of looking at technological change over time, and particularly using um, what are termed evolutionary or Darwinian models in that yeah. kind of dual inheritance theory, cultural evolution framework, yeah. um, to talk about change over time and technologies in a very dehumanized way. And on the other hand, you have a kind of social technology that's largely based in a kind of European context that comes out of the hmm. world of French theory. So um, uh, Le Roi Goron, uh, a French prehistorian of the, the middle 20th century, he kind of put his own spin on um, you know, the, the um, bodily techniques and bodily technologies with a prehistoric gloss in the 1960s. Uh, and that fed into a world of French technology studies, uh, hmm. which has been kind of in dialogue with archaeology in the francophone world and more and more in the anglophone world for the last kind of two decades and those things are kind of emerging separately and i clearly kind of got trained up in the 
the the European context with my doctorate and masters, but also just my own my own interests in that kind of francophone anglophone um, social theory world was always much more compelling to me than the very empirical, very dehumanized modeling that a lot of American empirical archaeologists get into. Yeah, my wife was actually training at University of Missouri, so she wasn't training with Lyman, but she was around all those dudes. Mm -hmm. They're all dudes for the most part. They are. They are. There is, <laughs> I think, there are about two women in that whole world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, they she was not working with him, but I was, I, I, I was around those folks. Uh, can you tell us a story of, is it Reese Jones and the kind of colonialist or even racist theory of technological change he f put forward about prehistoric Tasmanian people? Yeah, so Reese Jones, he was um, a kind of legendary Australian archaeologist, like many of that generation. This is the mid to late 20th century. Uh, he started out in England and then kind of got shipped over here. Uh, and I, I say that completely unironically. There were a series of professors, particularly from Cambridge, who sent their best students down to the colonies to go set up archaeology in huh. uh, New Zealand and Australia. And this was in the kind of 60s-ish. Anyhow, he was, he was Welsh um, and uh, famously kind of very proud of his Welsh heritage. I think he might have spoken Welsh as well, but I'm not sure on that. Um, but he was a PhD student at the Australian National University, so at my university, and he got sent off to go uh, dig in Tasmania. Uh, which there had never been um, research archaeology in Tasmania really prior to his work. There'd been some kind of collecting and some recording, but not kind of scientific, um, solidly methodological, well-collected. And he excavated in a series of caves um, and came up with some patterns in the material. And he was digging not very large trenches, but he was digging within these, these rock shelter sites to see evidence of um, subsistence practices, what people are eating, um, but also stone tool technology and other technologies. And what he found was that there was a point where the size of the fish bones changed and the type mm -hmm. of the fish bones changed and also the technology changed. And he said that was about, oh, I have to get this off the top of my head. I think about 3000 years ago. I think that's right. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this is in the 60s. So the dating's all a bit messy because yeah. we've got better methods now for that. And his read of that um, changing technology and changing fish bones was that people had stopped um, fishing for deep sea fish uh, and that they were using fewer and um, less complex tools. Uh, and he said people forgot. You know, this is after Tasmania had been cut off from the mainland um, and the population was pretty small and pretty constrained, although not as small as he thought it was in that work. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, well, you know, that, you know, they forgot, they lost the technology, they de-evolved. Uh, the technology is getting simpler because the people are getting simpler. They're not able to go do this. Now, it, you know, completely missed. Uh, and there's a, a wonderful scene, actually, in a, a documentary that was made a few years ago called um, First Footprints, where a current archaeologist is standing outside one of the caves that he excavated and talking about the problems in Reese Jones' work and standing on top of a shell midden. Uh, and he's not commenting on the fact that he's standing on top of a shell midden, but he's just standing on top of, you know, a thousand years of accumulated shellfish. <laughs> huh. uh, so it's not that their diet is becoming impoverished. They've just switched away from deep sea fish to much easier to acquire and, in fact, much richer and, in fact, better for you. Um, yeah. Shellfish that's just right there in the shallows. Um, I, it's, it's a great visual. He clearly thought a lot about it and got the camera people on side with it. But anyhow, 
Um, Reese figured that, you know, in the 1960s, in that kind of evolutionary paradigm, which was still very strong then, um, that what you're seeing is a de-evolution. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, a problem. Uh, and it's a product of its time. The, the big problem is that he caught the attention of uh, a media entity and they made a documentary called The Last Tasmanian. And The Last Tasmanian was not intended to be uh, a tool of racism. In fact, it was intended to be a tool of empowerment and teaching because it was the first time the Australian public really saw the story of, I'll say the white Australian public really saw the story of um, the Tasmanian genocide. And it absolutely mm. was a genocide by um, British settlers and British troops. Hmm. And they filmed Reese Jones's research and him talking through his research and explaining that in his mind there were no full-blooded and take that with huge scare quotes there were no full-blooded Tasmanians left and so there were no indigenous Tasmanians left because huh. the last indigenous Tasmanian was this woman named Truganini who had died in the 1870s I think 1860s or 1870s um, and of course, that's not true. There are lots of Tasmanian people who have indigenous heritage. There are lots of people raised with culture and with ceremony. Um, but it didn't fit that evolutionary model. And it wasn't how Reese Jones, trained in this kind of Eurocentric white archaeology framework, would see things. And moreover, the story of kind of de-evolution. Yeah. And what he termed in one of his more repulsive publications, a slow strangulation of the mind. Um, wow. That that went out to the Australian public on television. People watched it and they just absorbed it. You live in an isolated population. You become inbred. You become stupid. You lose technology. You die. And maybe they were already dying before the English got there. And I don't think that's what Reese intended. He He's, you know, passed several decades ago. I've never met him. I don't think that's what he intended. Yeah. Um, and he spent a long time after the film came out and after there was quite a lot of controversy about it with the mm -hmm. indigenous Tasmanian population who were like, what are you doing? This isn't, what have you done? This is terrible. Um, but he um, he kept trying to defend himself and he, he clearly didn't realize that that's what he'd done, but of course that's what he did. And unfortunately for archeology, span <laughs> uh, yeah. his work has gotten picked up. Most archeologists and certainly all our Australian archeologists just say, no, we've done you know five decades of archeology span since then, including in Tasmania, there's a whole new suite of methods that involve community consultation, collaborative working, co-creation of research methods and approaches. We don't believe what he said, and actually we have a better understanding of the materials than Reese did based on a series of very small excavation units. Um, but um, non-Australian archeologists, particularly in that evolutionary archeology set, have picked up his work and fed it into these evolutionary models in ways yeah. that just make me crazy every time i get sent one to peer review someone cited one of these papers and i talked to me you can't you can't cite this <laughs> well you i thought it was a really nice <laughs> it was a really nice example yeah. of how um you know these kind of racist colonialist evolutionary models really drove thinking and even i think in his case it seems like drove his kind of misinterpretations of what he was finding perhaps right yeah, well, and, and he did come out of that kind of 1960s paradigm of, right. which again is still very strong in some elements of um, North America, but that, that paradigm of, you know, we're looking at what people eat, we're looking at what they make. These are all kind of 
data points that let us reconstruct scientifically the processes that drove their lives uh, rather yeah. than what people believed or how they felt or how they related. Mm -hmm. um, and that sits in an evolutionary context that it's, it's largely driven by kind of evolutionary concerns. So I wanted to ask you a bit about your doctoral work, which features in the book and, and seems to be, you know, it's, it was, as you kind of laid out earlier, it was related to how you kind of got into this topic. So you, um, I wanted to hear a bit about like how your dissertation, you know, led you to be kind of skeptical, it seems, about some of the stories we tell about technological advances. So you were looking at like, you know, in, I'll, I'll put this in quotation marks, like the transition from stone and metal tools. And you found it just like not as simple a transition as, you know, we might expect. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So I'm a stone tool specialist originally. Um, and I put together a project that was supposed to look at these stone tools that everyone, everyone said, you know, 200 years of archaeology, these stone tools, they're copies of metal tools. Uh, skeuomorphs, which probably your computer and technology studies people will recognize that word. Yep. Uh, but I, I will say, just because I have the chance, that is an archaeology word. We invented it. All of you have <laughs> stolen it from us. <laughs> it never happens that way. Usually we're the ones stealing things. That's right. That's one of ours. <laughs> um, so I, I was really interested to look at this technological skeuomorphism as a process to understand, you know, what people are doing when they start using metal and what they're thinking about stone and why on earth they'd be copying metal and stone. And then I started looking at objects. And as so often happens with archaeology, once you actually sit down with the kind of weirdness and the irregularity and the frankly unruliness of past yeah. materials, everything that you thought going into it just falls apart. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there looking through boxes of, I was looking at three different classes of objects, but boxes and boxes and boxes of um, what are called flint daggers. It's a type of knife that shows up in the kind of late fourth and into the third millennium BC. They're really widespread in Western Europe. They're made in different places in different ways. Um, I was sitting there with them going, these aren't copies of metal. No one's copying metal. What is going on here? And it just kind of made me reevaluate all my own assumptions because, you know, if 200, and nobody would question this, 200 years of archaeology, 250 mm. years, particularly these ones, because they're up in Denmark. So they've been amongst those very early classified, yeah. studied, categorized things. Then what the heck else is wrong? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, why did yeah. people think they were uh, copies at first? Is that, can you reconstruct that? So, yeah, yeah, um, it's pretty straightforward and it, it sits in that evolutionary framework. It's where the word skeuomorphism comes from. It's from the idea that um, as people develop uh, new technologies, those technologies are unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. uh, and as part of that kind of evolutionary state as technologies evolving, they are made to look like older technologies because okay. that's what people are familiar with. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, they're, they're you know, the, the appendix. Um, they're just kind of hanging on, not doing anything, mm -hmm. looking or, or rivets on your jeans. You, know, you buy your Levi's and they still have rivets on them. Those rivets aren't doing anything. Uh, those are the sorts of things that started off with that discourse around skeuomorphism. Mm -hmm. um, and these were, there are a couple of different very early. So they, they do look, they've got a kind of, particularly some of them, a kind of really nice fishtail shape. So the handle is a nice incurving handle and you've got a nice leaf shaped blade. And there are some early metal daggers, not that early, but there are some metal daggers that look 
a bit like that. So it's an easy kind of visual. This thing looks like that thing. And mm -hmm. that fits 19th century ideas of typology. Two things look alike. They must be the same type of thing. Um, and then on top of that, uh, we know that they're similar-ish in age, uh, you know, only a few hundred years as opposed to thousands of years apart. So there might be a relationship between them. And I, I don't deny there is a relationship when you start making daggers all of a sudden. There's something going on, but it's not one-to-one. But also there's this idea that um, people in um, marginal peripheral areas, people who don't have metal when other people are using it, and most of the early metals happening in Europe, in kind of Central Europe, the Alpine area, Southern Europe, um, so people in Western and Northern Europe, they want metal. Again, it's this very capitalist idea. Mm, you know, we mm -hmm. want this scarce resource, so we make our best copy of it because we're envious of it. We, we <laughs> deeply want this thing that we can't get. So we're, mm -hmm. we're just copying it ourselves in our kind of local, peripheral, savage, not evolved. You can hear some echoes yeah, yeah. version. Uh, and, and that's where it comes from. And it just kind of fed through. Uh, and fed through for lots of things to the point that, you know, you find two things that look like, oh, you know, this is maybe an imitation of that. This is the, the easier material, so it's a copy of that. And you see that with ceramics a lot. People talk about pottery maybe being, you know, designs on pottery, maybe being copies of basketry, for example. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yeah. So when, when you started, when you're actually looking at these stone tools and the narrative you received is kind of falling apart on you, where did your head go from there? Uh, oh, shit. <laughs> but like, isn't that the generally yeah. the PhD student That's reaction, what happens. right? Yeah. You just go, oh, oh, shit. <laughs> you thought, I think you just have to collect the data and start recording more than you thought you needed to record, make a mm -hmm. lot of discursive notes, uh, and then take it away and think with it, and then yell at your friends for a while. Um, I, I do a lot of my really productive thinking actually preparing conference papers. I always have. It's something I find really generative for me. And so a lot of what I did was sign up for kind of very low-risk archaeology conferences, PhD student conferences, or, you know, Bronze Age conferences with 20 or 30 people and try and present, all right, here's my data so far. This is what's not happening. This is what might be happening. And then see how people reacted to that and have conversations there. Uh, so for me, it was, a, it was a lot of series of kind of reworking and talking it out and presenting it to different groups and figuring out what made sense to me. But I know that's not everyone's approach. <laughs> and where'd you, what, do you, what do you end up think is, is going on with these things? So the daggers in particular, and I'm leaving all the other stuff I looked at out because it's just too complicated to get into. Mm -hmm. um, but the daggers in particular, there's a, a bigger thing happening in the fourth and third millennia where we start seeing kind of classes of materials that look very similar across very big regions in Europe. Hmm. Not because they're being used in the same way or probably even mean the same thing to the different people who make them, but because it's important to have stuff that looks like your neighbor's stuff and looks like your distant neighbor's stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and to my mind, that speaks to kind of social strategies as people are starting to value long distance communication exchange, perhaps even building kind of much more extensive kin networks uh, yeah. across regions, probably to do with the movement of some materials, probably to do with the movement of specific ideas. There are kind of ceremonies and rites that are emerging at this time that are very widespread and sitting across what we think of as probably cultural areas. Um, but there's a real interest in that period from the kind of, let's say, 3300 to around 
2,500 in starting to look like your neighbors, even if you're not living life the same way. So I, yeah. I, you know, when I was trying to kind of suss this out, ended up reading a lot of really classic science technology studies literature and sitting um, very strongly with the idea of boundary objects, hmm. thinking about these sorts of things as a, a sort of boundary object that would ease that social friction. If you're uh, increasingly valuing mobility and long distance mobility, if you're looking for ways to kind of have productive relations with people who are far away, perhaps to emphasize kinship with people who are far away, even mm. if you speak different languages, eat different foods, have different religious beliefs, raise your children differently. Mm -hmm. This kind of gloss of similarity, this looking enough like them to be obviously familiar to you. know, we're, we're both dagger people. We get each other. We can, we can talk. We can, we can yeah. find kin. We can kind of create fictive kin if we need. Um, that's kind of where I landed. And then yeah. it's something to do probably with the spread of metal. We've got new material sources that are very regionally restricted. You've got new knowledge about how they're working that's probably happening in kind of specific lineage groups connected to those hmm. regions. Um, but there's other stuff happening too at that period. Um, and you see this in a lot of materials. So you see it in the daggers, but you also see these kind of enormous flint blades that are being produced. They're kind of 40 centimeters long, very special technologies to get them. And you find those from Bulgaria to Portugal. Huh. Um, you find handled goblets showing up all through southeastern and southern Europe, hand or, like little handled pots. So there's drinking stuff happening and probably drinking rituals. Um, and again, you just get this idea that, that there's a real importance in kind of getting along. Maybe we're looking at a period, we probably are looking at a period where the population's ticking up a little bit. So you're probably running into people more, but yeah. you're also wanting to, you're trying to. And so you're trying to kind of erase some of those differences. You've perfectly set up the next thing I wanted to ask you. Um, you, like, you talk about how, um, in various parts of the book, you talk about how efficiency and functionality have really driven our thinking about technological change. Part of that has to do with capitalism and productivity shifts in the last 200 years. Um, but it shows up when people are thinking about the past where they're like, well, obviously the metal dagger, you're going to want that thing because it's more efficient. You know, it takes less muscle power to get your job done. There's all these benefits, right? But you kind of, and you've already started spelling that out here when you're explaining what you think is going on there. You you want to push in a kind of more a, a vision that's more about social practices and kind of interpersonal relationships as like the key to innovation rather than just efficiency, not that efficiency plays no role. So why do, why do you think that, you know, interpersonal relationships and so, social practices give us like, a better door into the process? Um, I think, so what I'd, I'd say is not so much that it's social process against efficiency. I would say that efficiency is just another social value judgment. Mm -hmm. So whether sure. something's efficient or not, and, and that's that's kind of the point. Um, there are a lot of things that we just assume because they're our culture. Our culture does certain things or sees certain things or believes that some things are objective. Efficiency is an objective measure that we can, there are all sorts of ways we can measure efficiency. But all those ways of measuring efficiency are things that we've invalued culturally ourselves and we've invented. They're not universal. They don't have great time depth. They were all invented processes. So we can't use it as an objective measure for any other period or even culture. Yeah. Because the things that look efficient aren't necessarily the things that we see as efficient. Maybe it's efficient because... Um, because it's you know made by the right person and because the right person made the thing, it works better. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we've all got our little superstitions. I, I 
absolutely can't cook without putting a little bit of salt over my shoulder if I hmm. if I spill it. Um, that that goes deep. I've done that my whole life, um, and that's not efficient. But also, if I don't do that, I will totally lose the track of what I'm doing while I'm cooking, <laughs> and so I won't be able to cook properly. So that's an efficient act for me. And those social practices are our efficiencies, whatever they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the point is less to say there's no empirical way to study this and more to say all of our empirical ways to study it are themselves socially, historically contingent. Um, mm-hmm. And so we have to start from the premise that everything we use, and this is a kind of pretty horrible wanky social sciences approach, but everything we use to study the past is a social process, is a social practice. Think, you know, scientists make their own science literature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's also true for the present. And so everything we invent in the present to study, particularly to study the past, if we're not going to just recreate the present in the past, we have to question every measure. Yeah. Uh, and so um, for me, that kind of historical and cultural contingency that comes with all of those measures, that's an interesting thing to interrogate and to look at what other ways we can see, what other sorts of cultural or historical contingencies we can see in the material of the past, and then how that can shape our own view of things in the present. Um, I want to talk to you a bit about conservatism and resistance to innovation. So um, I was wondering at first if you could just tell us a bit about this, you know, this Iron Age Cornwall uh, uh, communities that I mentioned earlier and, you know, like what you see with their relationship to the Romans that might present kind of a nice way of looking at conservatism. Yeah, so uh, a little bit of background. Cornwall is the southwesternmost peninsula of the British Isles. Um, it's the little corner that people go to on holiday and forget exists otherwise. Uh, it's also <laughs> the poorest corner of England. Uh, hmm. It has been for a while, but it was a major um, resource center right up until the early 19th century because of the, the metal resources there. Tungsten, silver, uh, tons of tin, some copper. Uh, and it was a major, major international mining center. Uh, so it's this kind of very weird peripheral place that's on the one hand kind of historically very rich, but on the other hand, currently very poor. Um, and I've been doing field work there for about a decade, uh, kind of by accident, but a wonderful, happy accident. I, I, it's a brilliant place to work. The people are lovely um, and the communities are, are very kind of interested and excited about their past. Um, so one of the things I ended up working on, and I, you know, as a stone tool specialist, working on the Roman period was not something I ever planned. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, the archaeology confronts you and drags you places you never thought you'd go. Uh, it is a, you know, a part of the archaeological record. Um, and I was working on a series of uh, settlement sites that are probably, you know, we don't have dates for all of them, but they probably sit between about the first century BC and the sixth century AD. Uh, so that's that uh, kind of Romano-British phase. Um, and for a long time, there's a there's a kind of standing belief up until about 15 or 20 years ago, there are, there are no Romans in Cornwall. There are no Romans in Cornwall. The Romans, the Romans never made it to Cornwall. They got to Exeter and went, okay, that's far enough. Maybe <laughs> we'll go up to Wales. Um, of course, that's not, that's not true at all. Uh, this is major, major metal resources. The Romans were obviously there. And in fact, we've known the Romans were there. There's been a, there's a Roman fort uh, right in the middle mm. of Cornwall that was known about was excavated in the 1940s. Everybody knew about it. It just didn't fit the model very well. And there weren't there weren't villas. There weren't Roman settlements. There wasn't a kind of Roman style landscape. Yep. 
so, you know, clearly the Romans weren't there because their influence was so great that if they'd been there for any length of time, it would have turned Roman. Right. No, that's not what happened. There are actually now two more Roman forts that are known uh, in the Southwest, um, three now in Cornwall. There's probably more sites that are yet to be discovered. Um, what people are doing at this time, instead of building villas and square buildings, they keep building circular houses or maybe oval-shaped houses in some mm -hmm. cases, uh, which are a very kind of Bronze Agey, Iron Agey sort of way of life. And what we see from about the first century BC is they start enclosing them. So we had big open settlements as part of the Iron Age in that first millennium BC. When the Romans start showing up on the scene, and not even when they start showing up in Cornwall, but when they start showing up in Brittany, um, mm. in France, where there's lots of ties over the water between the Cornish and the Breton communities, and when they start showing up in Eastern England, all those settlements become enclosed. Uh, and there's some thought that maybe this is defensive. People are protecting their homes. Um, but they don't look like defensive walls yeah. and they're not, they're not treated. We don't see evidence of, you know, not many have been excavated, but we don't see a lot of evidence of violence or destruction or anything that suggests mm -hmm. that they needed defensive walls. It seems to be more a, a, a form of social distinction. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, and the, the settlements themselves aren't, they're not villages, they're not towns. They're basically manor farms. They're a couple of houses and a couple of outbuildings and they're probably inhabited by an extended family and maybe some, you know, some distant relatives or mm -hmm. other members of the community who help work the farm, care for the animals. Hmm. Um, and what we found when we started excavating, and this is actually kind of a lovely story of the archaeology actually doing what you want it to do. Um, we excavated one of these sites in 2019, uh, my team and I, and it was sitting, we'd done geophysics, so we'd done kind of subsurface survey, and we knew that there was a big field system and there was a big circular enclosure. And we thought the field system might have been 16th or 17th century. The circular enclosure is now flat and invisible. We thought, okay, but you know, if the ditches were still visible in the kind of historic period, people might have used them to orient the field system because it was built right around the enclosure. And then we excavated it and realized the field system was actually Iron Age. And what someone had done was they'd taken that kind of big field system, probably for moving sheep or cattle, and they built their house and they built this big enclosed settlement, plump, right in the middle of it. They'd actually filled in edges of the field system, the, hmm. the kind of ditches that made the edges of it. They'd filled those in with layers of, of clay and used it as the foundation for the front gate uh, for this big circular enclosure that they just plonked right in the middle of it. There's hmm. a real sense of continuity of occupation, but also, you know, mine. This is mine. <laughs> yeah. My land. <laughs> Um, and I, that, to a large extent, that's what I think is happening. So we have these communities in Western Britain that they are absolutely face-to-face -face with Romans. The Romans are changing the technological relationships because all of the mining and the metalworking that's been happening, that was probably happening at a small scale and perhaps even a slightly larger scale in the Iron Age, but being run by local people in Cornwall, some of whom were starting to amass kind of considerable wealth, mm -hmm. uh, all that ends. And the Romans are taking it and the metal's not going through Cornish ports run by Cornish people. It's going out to Exeter. It's going out into the Roman world. All the kin ties that they had with Brittany uh, are shifted because the Romans now run Brittany. And in fact, Bre the, the Breton landscape sees a much greater transformation than the Cornish landscape. So there's a much more um, Roman style way of life. There's probably more Roman control over the local farmers and over the kind of day-to-day -day practices down there. 
and some of those kin ties clearly attenuate um, during this period, although they come rushing right back in the 5th, 6th centuries. Uh, yeah. So they don't go away entirely. Um, but the, the, you know, the kin ties grow thin. Um, they're not maybe moving as much metal back and forth. They're not this point of call. People aren't coming into Cornwall for metal as they probably were in the later Iron Age. Um, and instead, you get this kind of real emphasis on these circular enclosures and this way of life that has nothing to do with Romans. Mm -hmm. um, mostly. They're not using Roman pottery. They're not wearing Roman clothes. They sometimes wear Roman shoes. They sometimes wear some Roman ornaments. Yeah. They're not eating Roman foods, but they're making their own types of pottery that suggest the diet is changing and maybe they're enjoying sauces that they didn't like before. Uh -huh. There's some very <laughs> interesting tensions there between yeah. kind of a Roman way of life and a Cornish way of life. And the importance, again, is to kind of look and be Cornish, putting the, the Cornish appearance where we're doing things our own way, we're living in our houses, we have our important relationships with each other, and we're going to ignore those guys in the fort over there. Yeah. Um, as much as possible. And the real emphasis seems to be on uh, internal animal movements, farming, cattle in particular, wealth on the hoof, we'd say. Yeah. Um, and a, a lot of this kind of landscape seems to be in many ways a landscape of resistance, but also just a landscape of um, trying to think of a way to put it. A landscape of, of local identity. These are local yeah. people with local concerns. And they're doing that really strenuously because we do our thing and we have our relationships and that's what makes us who we are. Does that make yeah, sense? And it, like, yeah. It, and it was like, it, the way I read uh, that section that you wrote, it's like they had their own game going on. There were probably social distinctions and hierarchies and status things going on, but they're oriented towards those status games. They're not like the Romans aren't that interesting. They're, they're looking inward at like, where does my family sit in this hierarchy? Maybe like, as a possibility. Yeah. But, um, you know, and that that becomes, you know, it just they hold on to that. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is hard to know. Um, yeah. And this is something I'm still kind of working out in my head. But I wonder how much of this has to do with um, a kind of clash of value systems. Yeah. So one of the things that happens with Roman occupation is that some people buy into it and become distinguished and become important and, um, you know, wealthier and more senior and. We get these kind of client kings showing up in the southeast of England uh, and in other places as well. And that doesn't seem to happen. There are people that in the in the kind of Roman writing get referred to as kings and in that kind of early medieval writing get uh -huh. referred to as kings. Uh -huh. But we have nothing that looks like a king yeah. or a royal settlement. And I, I wonder how much of this is an, a, a kind of pre-existing, um, not to say egalitarianism, but... Mm -hmm. let's say a, a an anti um anti-hierarchy sentiment yeah there does seem to be a real emphasis on kind of heterarchy and this kind of competition amongst equals and you know there may be some people who are more distinguished than others they have manor farms other sure. people don't but there seems to be a certain amount of social pressure as they compete with each other that none of them ever become none of those manor farms become villages none of those manor farms become towns none of those yeah. manor farms become you know royal sites per se uh, even as there are these kind of scattered references to the king of this and the king of that, mm -hmm. we can't find them archaeologically. Those people don't exist uh, in ways that, that look like you know kings or individuals who are much greater than all the others around them to us. And so I do kind of sit here from a 
from a perspective in kind of, let's say, anarchist theory, and I've spent a lot of time talking this out with colleagues who work in the Pacific, where you have similar sorts of cultures where people can be chiefs, but there are you know, yeah. a thousand chiefs. And so no one's really, everyone thinks they're the head chief, but there are a thousand chiefs. <laughs> right. um, and I, I kind of wonder if something like that's going on. And part of that resistance to Roman occupation was actually less about you know the Romans and outsiders per se, and more about this disruption to mm. a, a kind of quite in some ways quite dynamic in other ways quite rigid hierarchical system where you know, i think about australia um one of the things they say in this country and it's you know as an american it's really hard to get your head around is uh they have tall poppy syndrome tall poppy syndrome is the tallest poppy gets the shears uh you don't uh, you don't go talking about yourself you don't get above yourself you yeah, don't yeah. put yourself forward and i kind of wonder if there's a kind of tall poppy syndrome happening in <laughs> kind of roman cornwall that makes it really hard for them to to buy into that Roman way of life, which isn't about that. Yeah. It makes me, you know, it's like, I can imagine um, archaeologists who have a very kind of linear picture of um, social development, and especially our ideas about like what happens when the Romans show up, just not be able to understand this case. Um, and well, and I think that's you know, why I, there was kind of, there were no Romans in Cornwall until about right. 30 years ago. <laughs> A little um, bit more than that. The Cornish archaeologists all knew there were Romans in Cornwall. It's just everyone else ignored it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it makes me think of this thing called the Pessimist Archive, which is a kind of interesting collection. It's this dude. He's collected all these examples of people freaking out about new technologies. So it's everything from bikes to cars to Walkmen, um, you know, because that was going to lead to the downfall of uh, society. And he just, he just like, um, he collects all these examples, but the reason is, is because he has think he thinks pe people freak out and they have this what he think call he would probably call like an anti innovation bias, and he's a pro entrepreneurship dude, and he thinks that we hold back entrepreneurs unfairly, basically, um, or at least that's one version what, of the story. What have entrepreneurs ever done to convince us we shouldn't hold them back? Exactly. That's what I'd like to know. I mean, I, I have a whole list. I want to write the counter. I'll write a blog post or something. It's like that. And we can talk about like, you know, medicines that create birth defects and like super fun sites. And we can I can cherry pick all the counter examples because he's cherry picked all this set of examples. But I think like, you know, so I mean, I think that that kind of idea is out there. And then, you know, you have these notion these these situations where something like conservatism although it's almost it's almost weird to call it conservatism because that comes with so much baggage but it just makes a lot of sense for the people right i mean they have their own kind of way of life going on um and you know our kind of fixation on innovation in the modern sense becomes kind of like you know the thing that stands out i guess i mean but it's also a process of domination uh, yeah so when we talk about you know, people who are conservative or people who are resistant, you often, it, it creates a binary between people who are innovative and people who are not, yeah. right? Uh, and innovativeness and creativity, these are things that are bound up again in these kind of Eurocentric ideas of self and future into entrepreneurship and ideas of economic development, technological development. Uh, but also being in a position to declare that those people are resisting technology or those people are conservative. Mm -hmm. Is a, is a position of domination because you're defining yourself in opposition to them. Whereas actually, you know, again, we can talk about Cornwall, right? Um, to make this a little bit less 
contemporary, but yeah. anyhow, um, you know, in Roman Cornwall, people have major shifts in settlement architecture, probably reflecting shifts in social structure. They go from big open settlements to suddenly there are enclosed manor farms. That suggests there's a major sociopolitical change, yeah. probably a change in how people are relating to property as well and to territory. Um, we see changing ceramic styles and, and the emergence of new forms of food preparation that suggest yeah. that there are kind of big changes happening at a domestic level, um, at a dietary level. Mm -hmm. uh, we see very complicated um, social relationships developing that remain stable over 600 years, which suggests an innovation to new kinship forms and new ways of maintaining those kinship forms that can last for, you know. That's a long time. Yeah, yeah, 500 years, 600 years. That's a ton of generations, uh, particularly again in the past when people lived shorter lives. Yeah. Um, but that's an incredibly creative response to kind of major global changes. Yeah. They're, kin in Brittany become more distant and harder to access, perhaps less familiar, less like kin. Uh, their historic way of making a living and engaging with the wider world suddenly isn't theirs anymore. There's this invading military company and, and they who have built forts and who are probably being jerks because the Romans were jerks. <laughs> yeah, they were. Um, they, they absolutely were. Yeah. Know, there are these kind of big military forts now sitting in the middle of their Mm -hmm. raising land and in their territory, probably shaping how they travel. Um, mm -hmm. Two of those Roman forts are sitting, they're only like 20 kilometers apart, but they're sitting either side of a major um, routeway between kind of mainland England and the very tip of Cornwall where most of the metal was. And they're probably controlling access and controlling who goes. Suddenly you know, it changes your mobility, it changes everything. And the reaction is incredibly creative and dynamic and this whole new stable social structure flourishes and emerges very rapidly mm -hmm. while people are still kind of dealing with this big change happening outside them, these kind yeah. of big exogenous changes. And so that's not actually a conservative culture. That's a an incredibly dynamic, resilient, creative culture. But because we operate in these um, evolutionary frameworks that are very post hoc, we say, well, the Romans were the technologically advanced ones. Yeah. The Romans were the advanced ones. So they're innovative and the Cornish are conservative. Yep. And that's a, that's a position of domination, again, that creates a sense of peripherality that reinforces a sense of marginalization. And of course, the same thing comes through in um, colonial context. So I've done some work with a colleague here named Sally May, who's a just a brilliant rock art specialist, does tons of work with um, First Nations indigenous communities around rock art. And one of the things we've spent a long time thinking about is the way that uh, European material is brought into traditional rock art making practices. Mm -hmm. You know, rock art continues right up to the 20th century. People are making rock art right through the 20th century. And some of that rock art, particularly that 19th, 20th century rock art, has things in it like boats, uh -huh. guns, um, tobacco tins. It's one of Sally's yeah. favorites in tobacco tins, buffalo, <laughs> uh, tons of introduced material. Yeah. And, and thinking about the way that these kind of traditional art making practices are being used to interpret and reshape and reformulate and translate and, and in some ways frame these introduced materials and these introduced ways of life that are mm. extremely threatening and in many cases extremely violent mm. uh, has been a really interesting project and it's still that sense of kind of colonial imposition to say well they're still making rock art in the 20th century and people don't say this now but that kind of history of they're making rock art so this is a very kind of traditional unchanging society yeah. But actually, 
The rock art reflects incredibly dynamic, creative processes needed to survive that extraordinarily violent process of colonization that's happening mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, so it just depends yeah. kind of what your standpoint is, where you position yourself in that discourse of who's who's creative and who isn't. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, you know, this is not a question I ask very often, but I, uh, I think it's a hard one, actually. But I was just wondering, it like, what is the... If you had to pick like one message or lesson from the book that you wanted people to walk away from from it with, like what what would it be? I would hope that it communicates an anti-progressivist message. Um, that there isn't technologies don't progress. We're not getting more sophisticated year on year. These things are all that they happen in relation, right? They're socially contingent. They're historically contingent. Even what we recognize as a new technology, that's a cultural practice. We won't recognize something if we're not kind of set up to do it. And post hoc, we can tell lots of stories about the past. But if you actually kind of try and put yourself in the feet of someone, you know, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, a hundred thousand years ago, the world is going to look very different than the kind of history of victors that we tell when we look at what lasted, what made it to the present, what mm -hmm. survived the archaeological record. Um, so I think probably. There is no such thing as technological progression. It's not getting better. It's not getting, you know, more sophisticated. That's a that's a myth. That would be, hopefully be my takeaway. <laughs> I like it. And also Facebook sucks. Which I think <laughs> I managed to get into the conclusion somewhere. <laughs> I think you did. That's right. Um what's 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 up next for you? What's what are you working on now? Uh so I've been doing a lot of work around uh ancient DNA and genetics. Um, I, I, you know, I'm a little bit disturbed and it's getting better. The last couple of years is getting better, but I've been really disturbed with the way that genetic data is being used to rewrite stories of the past. Mm. And we've got all this kind of very rich and there've been kind of big technological developments in the last particularly 10 years. That means that we're getting many more uh, ancient DNA results yeah. and of much higher quality than we were before. And that's great. More data is always welcome. Archaeology is a, you know, in many ways, a struggle against a broken data source. Yeah. Um, but um, I worry that the geneticists think that they can use genetic data to tell stories of social structure. And we're seeing, mm -hmm. you know, here's here's a bunch of DNA results. Here are marriage patterns. It's like, guys, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's not how it works. Their egomaniacs is the problem, I oh think. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that. I would just say they're not they're not trained yeah. to understand some of the problems that they're introducing. Mm -hmm. And the power dynamics are such that the archaeologists that they work with often don't have much of a voice on the interpretation side. Mm -hmm. or, you know, there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago on, um, I think last year, actually. I think the last two years have been like eight years. Definitely. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but there's a paper that came out on, on Neolithic Ireland and this kind of huge genetic survey, tons and tons of results, really exciting, and some really brilliant stuff. One of the things they found, um, they found a seven or eight year old individual who'd been buried in a, a megalith, a, a passage tomb. Hmm. I think a passage tomb. Anyhow, a megalith, um, who apparently had Down syndrome and is one of the earliest individuals we huh. found in the archaeological record who had Down syndrome. And that's... That's great. That's a whole bit of history that we yeah, never that's had before. And now we can start talking about that. Mm -hmm. What they came away with as their result was uh, dynastic elite in Neolithic Ireland. And they came to that result based on 
uh, some level of relatedness between individuals over the course of a thousand years buried in or in the vicinity of megaliths. Mm. Um, and particularly their star individual who was uh, in, I think in Newgrange, one of the really big famous tombs, hmm. uh, who showed evidence of having been the product of close family incest. Mm -hmm. uh, and they translated that to an individual buried in a big fancy tomb uh, who's the product of close family incest. So incest was licit amongst individuals in society and this person was respected despite that, so pharaohs. Oh my God. Uh, the pharaohs bit ended up in, not in the actual nature paper, but in the kind of various interviews yeah. they gave around oh. it. And some of the <laughs> citational practices. And you just sit there as someone who knows anything about human relations and go, well, A, does that person know they're a product of close family incest? Mm -hmm. Does anyone else in the community know they're a product of close family incest? Why do you assume that this is known? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or normalized, right? Right. Yeah. And B, anyone who knows anything about archaeology can say those tombs were open and the human remains were highly fragmented. That wasn't a complete burial of an individual. That was a bone fragment. Mm -hmm. uh, and that bone fragment may well have been in circulation for a couple of generations before it ended up in that tomb. So was that person still the person that they were? Mm -hmm. I, there's just way there's too much to say problems. this. Yeah. 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 And that kind of, and that's, that's an extreme example. And that yeah. just makes me crazy. Um, but you see this kind of over and over. There's this sense that, well, we've got science now. We can science it and that will tell us real things about the past, not this stuff that you make up from yeah. stone and pottery and bits of dirt. And that's not actually how archaeology works. And that isn't really how science works either, no, right? No, no. Genetics, genetics don't tell us about social structure. They tell yeah. us about how people... Uh, interbreed and they only tell us about some of that anyways um i think so archaeologists yeah, archaeologists and historians can unite against these people too because they also drive us nuts so well like they drive us nuts but we want to work with them so yeah, we we, yeah. we tend to be kind of more pro-science than the historians i'm gonna say um sure yeah and so what i'm trying to do with the kind of the next project that's in development is find a way to use this question of kinship as a way to build huh. bridges. Um, because kinship is this natural intersect. It's a place that's kind of socially very rich. We talk about all the ways that people socially build kinship. Uh, and that kinship is, of course, a, a series of social relationships more than anything else. But we also have all this now emerging biological information about population and lineage and relatedness. Mm -hmm. And so I want to kind of try and make the two talk to each other so that it's not like me yelling at the geneticist anymore. I'd like to be like yelling with them. I will. I will. I will uh, hope. I will say good luck to you on that. And uh, I, uh, I. I can't wait to see what comes from that. This has been a lot of fun, Kate. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Liam. Thanks for all the challenging questions. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. 
I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Ford is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.